My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Just a quick note before getting into the podcast, since this was recorded, Leo Fitzpatrick has closed his St. Mark's gallery space, though he expects to reopen in another location soon. Leo Fitzpatrick is an odd fit for the art world, though he's made it his home for the last decade or so. First of all, he's a working actor who was discovered at 14 skating in Washington Square Park by Larry Clark and cast in the seminal 90s flick Kids. And he continues to act in shows like The Wire and whatever else meets his peculiar criteria. He doesn't really like the art world, but until recently, he was co-director of the prestigious Marlborough Gallery in Chelsea. He's an artist himself, but he's reluctant to show his own work. He opened a new space, Public Access Gallery, on, of all places, St. Mark's Place to exhibit only artists who have never had a one-person show before. He once owned a gallery with artists Nate Lohman and Hannah Linden. So if I say he does things his way, you won't think I'm feeding you a cliché. The former skate punk from New Jersey who quit high school to hang out and became famous along the way is my guest today. Welcome, Leo Fitzpatrick. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. You have had your fingers in a lot of creative pies, acting, music, art, art dealer, zine, publisher. Is this something that could only happen in New York, do you think? Well, yeah. I mean, for me, it's pretty much the reason I moved to New York. You know, when I started coming to New York when I was 12, it just opened my eyes to so much. And um, there was no turning back after that first trip into the city by myself when I was 12 years old and going to the Brooklyn banks. And it was just so eye-opening. I couldn't believe that other kids in New Jersey weren't doing the same thing. And also this idea of New York, you can kind of reinvent yourself over and over and be whatever you want to be at any given time. That's at least the New York that I wanted to experience. Basically, the only job I ever had was avoiding getting a day job. You know, it was like always trying to figure out a new thing and, and evolving. You could be an actor and a DJ and do stuff in the art world. I really look up to people like John Lurie, who do lots of different things. Jim Jarmusch, like those were the people who inspired me to move here. Yeah, those are two great examples. John also being a master of many different artistic activities, I guess. You know, he's a musician, he's an artist, he's an actor. When did you first even know about John Lurie? Was that something you picked up after you came to New York? Yeah, for sure. My parents are both from Ireland and they're very working class. So there wasn't much time in my household for like cultural stuff, like music or film or anything like that. It was basically go to school. That was about it. But that gave me Which the, you didn't even do that. I mean, well, yeah. the minimum, when, you didn't even do the minimum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, once skateboarding entered the picture, that all changed. But it was great because 
I was able to discover everything on my own and everything was exciting. And skateboarding was a great introduction to a lot of things. And, um, you know, I started reading fairly young, probably around 13 or 14. And it wasn't that I didn't like school. I just didn't like the things I was being taught. I was very interested in being educated about certain things, but it wasn't the things that the school system was necessarily teaching me. Like every kid, I started out reading basketball diaries and things like that. Which is a Jim Carroll novel, right? Yeah, yeah. Which is almost like a memoir, half real, half not real, but kind of depressing for a young person to read about someone who gets heavily addicted to drugs. Yeah, but he made it sound all so romantic. (laughs) (laughs) That was the excitement about coming to New York and being a part of it. And, and, you know, I think for me and my friends, it was always about contributing. You didn't want to seem like you were leeching off the scene. You wanted to be a part of the scene and you wanted to contribute to the scene. And it's interesting. I still think about some of the bars and stuff we used to hang out at, like Max Fish and the whole and these sort of places. It's interesting to think about how many people came through those places that aren't still around. And you think, where did those people go? For five years, they were like, you know, in the scene, and then they just kind of disappear one day. And that's interesting to me. Yeah, what happens? I mean, some of them have passed away from one reason or another, and something that you have addressed in a work that I've seen and heard about. You call it the refrigerator piece, where you try to address some of your friends who have fallen over the years. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. For me, it's fairly normal, which is a very strange thing to say. But for someone like my mother, who, you know, didn't really have many friends pass away until she was much older, she thinks my life is crazy because I'm constantly telling her about people that are passing away. And she thinks, my God, what are you boys into? You know, it's strange to where that's something you just grow to accept. My last friend who passed away because of drugs, he had a very long addiction and it wasn't, it wasn't a glamorous death by any means. And you think, well, that's over with. Now can we just start dying of natural causes? You know, it's, it's uh, the drug thing is really tricky because if somebody fucks up and overdoses, and dies, it's almost better than dealing with a, you know, 20 year addiction and slowly withering away. You know, it's tricky. And I'm just, I'm just glad to have survived my twenties with the friends that I did. You know, I think everybody goes through a rough patch. Yeah. I don't know if you're referring to Dash No in particular in that instance, but yes, he was a friend of yours and one of the big stars of that era of uh, 90s and 2000s New York who had a huge influence on a wide range of other artists and continues to do that. And I know there's a documentary coming out that Cheryl Dunn did on his life that shows that. Was that uh, a tough thing or did you, you know, it's always difficult because I know in the past when something happens, the friends are always second guessing themselves. Maybe I should have done something. I could have said something. Uh, I could have helped him, but usually... It's not really the case, but people do tend to feel that way. The only thing I took away from Dash passing away was, obviously it was terrible, but um, it's one of those things where you get frustrated because people will know the myth and not the actual person. 
you know, people will hear the legend of Dash. No, when I think of Dash, I think of like a very sweet young kid. I don't think of crazy Dash. I think of like, he was very sweet and sincere and loving and just really liked to have a good time. He had a dark thing to him as well, but that's not how I picture him. Even in his like being kind of crazy, it was all about having fun. It would come across like he was doing crazy things, but it was just to make other people laugh and to make himself laugh. You know, it wasn't about being the craziest guy in the room. And, you know, at that time, all my friends were addicts of some kind, you know, like it wasn't a big deal. It's just some people cross the line and you, and you get worried about them. And, you know, I was with Dash when he was sober. I was with Dash when he was fucked up. It's, it was just something. I think because you downplay things when you're young, you don't realize the seriousness of the situation. You know, it's all about having fun and, oh, Dash is fucked up again, but it's not a big deal. It's Dash, whatever. But I mean, there was definitely dark moments where, you know, you're watching your friend go through withdrawal and stuff. And, and it's, um, you know, heroin has played a, a big part in my life without being a participant. Just by being other other people around, the, the movie actually shows the sweet side of him. I really felt that because I didn't really know him, but I've heard stories, obviously. But I think the movie yeah. did help to humanize him and didn't really just go over to that dark side a hundred percent. And I know Cheryl was really instrumental in making sure that was part of the message. New York itself is hard on people, so when you say. Your mom is surprised that this is happening, but this has been happening for a very long time. It's not as if it just started with your generation. You know, it goes yeah. all the way back before that. And, you know, New York has a way of destroying people or, in your case, you know, giving them opportunity to try and, and find their way and to success and finding a place in the art world or just in the creative community. Do you feel that still true of New York for the younger generation? Because I know you're still very much in touch with them. Yeah, I think strangely, this pandemic has really opened up a lot of doors for young people because everything was so rent driven. You weren't able to experiment anymore. Whatever you were doing, you had to make a profit to be able to afford to keep doing it. But now the rents have kind of sort of leveled out or bottomed out or whatever it is. And now people can experiment again. And I think that's a really good thing. You can play music in Tompkins Square Park. You can sell your clothes on the street. Like the cops don't get out of their cars anymore. There's a great big graffiti boom happening right now and people selling stuff on the street. And, you know, the guys selling fake Gucci bags down on Canal Street are back. I love that sort of stuff. I love the kind of grit in New York City. So, yeah, I think... Young kids will always figure it out. I really do believe that sometimes they're a little more reckless than I care to be anymore, but that's being young and stuff. And the next show that I'm doing at the gallery, I'm letting a young person curate it because I know that I am no longer young and I don't necessarily know young artists, but I'm smart enough to know that. And so I ask a young curator to put together a show and to not worry about actually the quality of the art, just put together a good group of people. Because when I was coming up, you had places like Max Fish and stuff where you were allowed to experiment and curate 
but the rents got so crazy. And I just wanted to give my space over to a young kid because I don't think those opportunities are around very much anymore. I was thinking about New York also with regard to something that happened over this recent time, which is the cannabis legalization and what impact that might have in the city. I feel that a lot of these empty retail spaces are going to be taken over by businesses relating to that in some way. Consumption lounges are part of the program and people are allowed to smoke outdoors even now, you know, before we've gone through all of the final paperwork to make it legitimate. Do you feel that could have an impact in bringing us back to this gritty New York that uh, you seem to like? I mean, I don't know, like, because where my gallery is on St. Mark's, people just smoke weed all day in front of it. (laughs) And me being 40 some odd years old, all I'm thinking about is these guys passing blunts or joints. And I'm like, no, there's a pandemic. (laughs) Oh, they're still passing? Really? I'm like the worry wart. It's not about the weed. It's about the getting sick with stuff. For me, I have no problem with weed or people smoking weed. That is the least of my concerns when it comes to walking around New York City. I have a five-year-old. I don't know what I'll say to him when he's 15, but I think weed is pretty harmless, even though I haven't smoked weed since I was 16. It's just not a drug I like. But yeah, I think weed's great. Go for it, you know. The way you talk about people back on the street selling stuff and the way the city has become less strict about a lot of what goes on on the streets because, you know, the police don't come out of their cars. And I just see that as a real new space for the city because we haven't really experimented with something like this that's been going on for quite a long time in other states and cities. We're kind of behind the ball on that one, but I think it's going to make an impact. To me, I believe that it has a certain element that brings people together, that's very communal, that it's about community. And, you know, it remains to be seen if I'm just naive because of the corporate side that's coming. But that's kind of what I'm hoping for. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I went to Denver about a year after it had been legal in Denver. And Nobody had a problem with it. They'd raised a ton of money through taxation, was giving it back to the city. And it just seemed like a great idea. And, you know, as long as that money is going back into schooling and things like that, like, why not? Right now, the schools are suffering and, and so much, so much stuff is suffering. So if you can raise money on this very simple thing and give it back to the community, why not do it? is basically my thought. And also, yeah, expunging some of the records of people who have been arrested over the years. And, you know, there's a lot of social justice aspects that are really great. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the Beyond the Streets documentary. Yes. You have? So as someone, you know, very closely identified with that era, with Chloe, Savigny, Harmony, Corinne, Harold Hunter, Rosario Dawson, who were just people in your group who wound up in this movie. Do you feel that youth culture today has an opportunity to live that kind of style where scenes are really important? You mentioned Max Fish. You know, yeah. To me, it's always been about the scenes more than the art per se. I was always more attracted to a scene where there were artists and creative people around and doing a variety of things. And I was very anxious to get to know those people and wanting to 
hang out with them. And the art was great also. So that was just like the secondary thing for me. But the scene has always been the primary thing. Is that something that you could relate to? Yeah, I 100% agree. And that's why I said, like, this kid is curating the next show at my space. I said, don't worry about the quality of the art. As long as they're good people, put them in the show. Because, yeah, it's about communities. And my only concern is that young people might be looking for something that's not available instead of creating something. Where I'm like, you know, if if there's not something that you're looking for, you need to create it. You need to develop your scene and find DIY places to do art shows, find places to do music shows. You can't wait around for somebody to offer you something if it doesn't exist. Like for me, my first gallery, we were just drinking and talking about art a lot. And then we just kind of said, hey, why don't we just do this, but like start a gallery? Nobody asked us to do it. (laughs) There was no real need for it. We just did it to have fun and to experiment. I hope that there are some young kids who are hungry enough to do a similar thing. I don't, I don't really know what it's like to be young anymore. It's like just having a passion and it being ambitious and just going for it. It's okay to fail. That's what I don't think is explained enough, is that it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. You still have to try it. You know, being successful isn't the best thing in the world. You know, if that's your only goal is to be successful, well, you're going to get let down a lot. So you might as well experiment, have fun, try things, fail, do it over, do it over, do it over. It's okay to be genuine and to admit you don't know what you're doing and to fucking just try it anyway. You know, that's what I think. There is no right way to do anything. New York in the 90s is uh, an era that I don't feel gets enough attention in the media world today. So much is focused on the 80s and, you know, for good reason. But in the 90s, was an equally creative and amazing community in New York. The skate scene, particularly around the Legend Gallery and Max Fish and that whole era. How do you look back at those days? Do you feel that that was like a golden age? Yeah, I definitely feel like it was a golden age. But, you know, nostalgic is definitely a word uh, that I would use. I might be seeing it through rose tinted glasses. Like maybe it wasn't that great, but well, I think like alleged gallery, Aaron Rose, I looked to Aaron Rose as not like a role model, but he, what he did with alleged is what I want to do with my space. Alleged was the coolest gallery in New York city for a moment, the vibe around it, the community, how accessible it was. I really respect what Aaron did with the legend. American Fine Arts was another one where it was sort of Colin DeLand was comfortable enough to let the people who worked for him curate shows. And then there were places like Tonic and stuff where you'd go see music. It was seeing like Elliot Smith hanging out at Max Fish, you know, things like that where you're, you're like, whoa, like that was pretty cool. Taylor Mead. It's a regular. I that Taylor Mead was like so accessible. And he'd probably yell at you if you tried to talk to him. But like, how great <laughs> is that? You know, that he's just at the end of the bar. And it's interesting because for a long time, I said, like, why do I continue to live in New York? If the city I moved to, the feeling is no longer there, right? Because New York, I feel like, was pretty cashed out 
pre-pandemic. It was just a rat race. And it was just like all about just paying rent and making money to like survive. I think the pandemic reset things in a really good, interesting way. Me and my family, we don't have a house upstate. We don't have a beach house. We had nowhere to go. And a lot of the other families at Tompkins are in similar situations. So our community grew a lot stronger through this whole thing. And it's another 9-11, Hurricane Sandy type moment. It's like New York just resetting itself. It's kind of not like only the strong survive, but you know, you have to, you have to be fucking committed to living in New York. It's not easy. They don't make it easy on you. If it's not one thing, it's another, but it's pretty nice to say like, oh yeah, I've been here a long time. Yeah. But to have really cleared out the tourists in this, which was, you know, a huge impact on the city prior to the COVID. So that's definitely one, one thing. You mentioned alleged gallery just for a second, because to me, that was the first place or gallery that took the skate culture seriously. The idea of painting on skateboards, for example, which was a California thing, but hadn't really been shown here. And it just made this whole community possible and to an extent for me, because I wasn't part of the skate scene to help me to understand what it was and all the creativity and everything of the, you know, because it's a huge culture or subculture, you know, that has music, art, literature, all these elements to it that weren't really understood at that time by most people. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think of alleged gallery, Supreme, and the movie Kids all sort of happening around the exact same time, you know, and sort of pushing skateboarding into the forefront of like fashion and art and this sort of a thing. Because I've been skateboarding since like the late 80s. And before all those things happened, nobody liked skateboarders. Girls didn't like skateboarders. Anybody other than skateboarders didn't like skateboarders. But now it's very cool to dress like a skateboarder or to be a skateboarder. And and I almost prefer it the old way. I liked it when it wasn't cool. And when you were sort of just, you know, like it it was kind of depressing to be a skateboarder back in the day, but that's what I liked about it was that it was like a loner thing. You weren't a part of a team. You weren't cool. You just went out and did it because you liked to do it. And so it's weird. I always tell my kid, like, if you're at Tompkins Square Park and you're wearing a Thrasher shirt, you better be fucking skateboarding. <laughs> you know, like when you used to see somebody wearing a Thrasher shirt or a pair of Vans, you knew they skateboarded. Now everybody wears that kind of stuff. And it sort of co-opted the culture a little bit. And for the diehard, the purist, it could be a kind of like yeah, frustrating. Totally. I mean, people wear Jordans who never played basketball. And it's always interesting to look back on how things evolve and and become into the mainstream. I mean, that's something that I've always been interested in of watching. And that was part of my interest in the whole skateboard thing, watching how it comes from the underground into the mainstream and sort of tries to keep one foot in each world and walk the line between the two, because there's a lot of appeal to being recognized and understood and finding a little niche for yourself But at the same time, yeah, it gets co-opted and you see people who don't skate wearing the Thrasher t-shirt. You know, it must be really uh, insulting in some ways. 
in your role in kids, you did not play a very, you know, friendly or not friendly, but appealing guy, right? You were around like screwing yeah. the girls and giving them disease. And did that affect yeah. you afterwards? Because the movie is, you know, so much like a documentary in some respects. So I think a lot of people took it for real that this is what was really going on. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, you know, you have to remember I'm 16 when I make this film. Right. So like I said, I'm already this awkward kind of loner skateboard kid. And people from New York really like to remind people from New Jersey that they're from <laughs> yeah, New Jersey. Right. You know. So now I'm playing the main character in this very New York movie. And so a lot of the other actors and the other people in the film were not so happy that a guy from New Jersey is playing the lead in this film. So that's one thing. You know, it's weird to represent New York when I'm very proudly, like, New Jersey raised. You know, I, I like being the outsider. I don't want to pretend I'm from New York. I moved to New York and made a name for myself, but I'm, I know definitely where my roots are. The other thing that happened is when the film came out, Miramax, who distributed it, they didn't really tell anyone we were actors. They kind of let the idea of is this real is this fake kind of this gray area they kind of like promoted that like larry and harmony were the only people who ever did press for the movie so a lot of people thought because you know justin is very much like casper harold is harold a lot of the characters were written for the people who ended up playing them the only two people that were really casted were me and chloe and chloe was supposed to play a different part my my casting was interesting because they had three other people, two other people they wanted to play Telly before me. There was one kid, I don't remember his name, but he basically hit puberty and he got too old to play the character. There was another person who was supposed to play Telly, but his mom actually knew who Larry Clark was <laughs> and said, no way. <laughs> you know, there's no way I'm letting you get involved with that guy. And then... I came around, Larry liked me, and the film studio said, no way. Like, we can't even understand what he's saying. He looks crazy. I know they brought <laughs> up the idea of uh, speech therapy. <laughs> and uh, they said he doesn't, he's not like a good-looking kid. And Larry says, well, yeah, if he was a good-looking kid, he wouldn't have to run around and chase girls. You know, only like an ugly, awkward kid would have to be that aggressive in, in getting these girls so it was weird it was definitely like a lot to take on as a 17 year old and then living in new york after the film was pretty uncomfortable i don't really remember too much of it but i actually moved to london to get away for a year it's that bad really wow yeah i mean people were straight up threatening me and stuff you know being like i'll kick your ass and fuck you and blah 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 and i'm a pretty shy awkward person like i don't really handle those types of things well i'm not going to explain to these people that i'm just an actor i'm not going to fight and i'd rather just walk away and but yeah it's weird and when when kids still come up to me and they say you know the movie you're like the film kids is the reason i moved to new york and i think fuck like it was a cautionary tale, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> that doesn't always turn out that way, right? 
people people love that shit. But so yeah, it's great. I'm still friends with Larry. Like you know, you showed him his work in in one of your spaces, I believe. My original space, Home Alone, my first gallery with uh, Nate and Hannah. Larry had this idea where he had all these shoe boxes of four by six quick prints because that's how he would edit. Is he would just go to the pharmacy or wherever and get quick prints. But he had two decades worth or something, you know, a lot. And he had this idea to sell them for a hundred bucks each so that kids could buy them, young people. And his gallery, his main gallery said, you're crazy. We can't do that because your prints are a couple thousand dollars. And if we start selling them for a hundred, that's going to ruin your market. And he's like, this isn't about the market. This is about young collectors and people who want something but can't afford a lot of money. And it definitely worked. Larry has this amazing ability to kind of continue to connect with young people. And so many people came to those shows. Like, it was crazy. And we did it in Paris, Tokyo, London, Los Angeles. And every day of those shows, there was a line of people down the block. And I don't think his gallery understood that. But Larry understood what was going to happen. He's been around a long time and he's confident in his ideas. You know, you just have to follow his lead. But the one thing I do know about, or the one thing I think about Larry is, um, you know, he's quite old now. He's getting older. And I think about this idea of being so obsessed with youth and the idea of getting older and getting further and further away from it, you know. I think a lot of what he does, I think he, he'll never be satisfied that he captured the perfect portrait of youth, you know, and that's what drives him. That's my personal opinion. So to get older and to get further away from that, I can imagine would be really difficult. Did you think you were going to pursue an acting career? I don't know if you call it a career at this point. Or I know you've been in yeah, many I mean, dozens of TV shows and films and things. The Wire being, you know, the cult hit that it was. I mean, I think it's funny um, that you say I'm successful. Because I, I always say the reason I do all these other things is because I'm like a failed actor. Oh, really? And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And it's weird. I begrudgingly still act. I feel like I've gotten way worse at it. My craft has really gone downhill. I've been very fortunate to do a small amount of projects. But the thing is, with acting, I don't control anything. I'm basically somebody somebody else hires, right? With the art world, even if I get fired from Marlboro, I'll just open my own gallery. I don't need a partner. I don't need a collaborator. I have more control over the art world stuff. Acting, you need to get a lot of approval before you get the job. And I always felt like an outsider in it because I never really studied acting. I didn't really think about it. It just sort of happened. And I was very fortunate and lucky that it did. But it was never a drive and passion of mine. And I kind of felt guilty for taking jobs away from people who really did have a passion for it. Whereas I would just kind of like treat it as going to work. But you describe yourself as an outsider in that world, but I feel like maybe that would be a fitting description for you in the art world as well, right? I mean, you, yeah. you've you opened a gallery on this most unlikely 
block of St. Mark's Place where even though the gallery world is kind of moving down the canal and here and there, I mean, all over the place, basically. But even so, that's not a place that anybody else would imagine having. So I think you've said that you feel uncomfortable in the art world and obviously a lot of your values and things that you've represented over the years don't match up with the big art world of money and, you know, primarily the driving force behind that. So, but you're still there. So I think that's what matters, right? That you're in it. Yeah. I mean, the reason I feel like I'm still in the art world is to provide kids a service for something like what Aaron Rose provided me with the Legend Gallery. I don't really have any ego or any real need to compete or compare myself to the art world because that's not what I'm doing. What I'm doing, it's like for the kids, you know, that's whose opinion matters to me. It's not the art world's opinion. I don't give a fuck what the art world thinks about my gallery. Like it's the kids who hang out at Tompkins, you know, if in 20 years, some kid talks about me the way I talk about Aaron Rose, then I've done my job, you know. Or Larry Clark. It seems like that's also somebody who would figure in your pantheon. Yeah. I mean, growing up, Larry is basically like a substitute father for me. And to be introduced to the art world via Larry Clark is pretty special. It's not glitzy. It's not glamorous. Larry's a real person, you know, and his friends are very real. And when you hear about Larry, some of his antics... And you're like, oh, okay, I want to be on the side of the artist. I don't want to be on the side of the dealers. If I go to a bar and there's a table of artists and there's a table of dealers, I want to sit with the artists. And I'm lucky enough that the artists respect me to welcome me into their lives. Whereas I know some artists who can't stand gallerists and things like that. But I'm welcome because I'm just normal. And I don't, I don't pretend to know shit. You know, I don't know. It's it's interesting to come from the side of the artist and open a gallery. Yeah, it is. It's great. It used to be more common in the history yeah. of art. It's in the Soho and the East Village. When I started my gallery, I thought to myself, this is honest. I thought, how much can I afford to lose? <laughs> That's like going to Vegas, right? Yeah. So I kind of gave myself a number that I would I could afford to lose. And I said, okay, let's go for it. And by let's go for it. I'm just having this inner dialogue. There is no partner. I'm like pretty bad at business. I'm like really bad at business. So it was never a money-making thing. And But we have been lucky to break even. That's cool. You know, the interesting thing about the gallery is as much as I say it's for young people, it's really helped me through this whole time period to be busy, to have a project to have somewhere to go, something to do. It's sort of like paying for therapy, you know. <laughs> Instead of having to see a therapist for the past year, I opened a gallery, you know. Fantastic. You, you talk about the kids being like your primary audience and you have a child of your own now. Mm-hmm. You grew up a, a certain way, like finding, learning things on your own, having, you know, this gut reaction to things that you liked or didn't like, not heavily educated in the academic world. So now you have a child. So how is your experience transferring to, to is it a, a boy or a girl? I'm so, yeah, he's a, he's a little five-year-old boy. A boy. So to your son, especially, because there's going to be a lot of things 
going forwards. But and I assume you're educating him and surrounding him with culture, you know, very different from how you grew up. I don't care how old your kid is. It's tricky to be a parent right now, for sure. <laughs> I just try to let him. It's weird because I do because I, I collect records and I have a lot of records. And basically, we break it down into slow or fast music. Like slow would be reggae, heavy metal would be fast. And I say, oh, what do you want to listen to today? Slow music or fast music? Somebody was talking to me about him the other day and they said, oh, does he ever break anything like art or anything? And I said, he probably does. But at the end of the day, it's just stuff. You know, I want him to know the only way he's going to know how to use a record player is if I show him, you know, it's not these records are it's just material things. And even though it might be worth a lot of money to some person. <laughs> I don't want him to grow up like, I don't know, like don't touch daddy's artwork or things like that. Like, I don't know. It, it's, it's so hard to describe raising a child, but you would know. It's like, right. you just want them to be comfortable and confident in their own skin. And a lot of the problems that kids have these days, like internet bullying and stuff like that, that didn't exist when I was growing up. And so... So yeah, I'll, I'd take it one day at a time for sure. I just try to make sure he's as happy as he can be on any given day. And that's my job, you know. That's about it. Sounds good to me. Thanks so much, Leo, for being on my show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I know I, I talk in circles and I don't always make sense, but uh, I hope... No, you, you do cool. fine, man. I totally get it. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. Take care. You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.